Amen. Please be seated. Please uh, turn in your Bibles or look on your devices. Isaiah 45. I'll read the last verses in the text we will study today, the whole of this chapter, Lord willing. Um, your pew Bibles are have this passage on 605 and 606. Maybe you looked at the title of the sermon when you came in and said, The Sovereignty of God Again? You Reformed people are always talking about the sovereignty of God. Don't you Presbyterians ever address any other issues but the sovereignty of God? Well, here's the thing. You wonder what I mean by Reformed. Uh, our church comes from the tradition of the Reformers. And by the way, it's not like we're just these old 16th century people. Um, any church that opens their Bible this morning, believes in it, and trusts in Christ, owes some debt of gratitude to what happened in the Reformation. And so in that sense, uh, evangelicals, Protestants have connection to the Reformation. But the, the high points of the Reformation, the things that really were brought back into light at that time, uh, namely the Scripture is God's holy word and sufficient to teach us what we needed to know about God. We learn about His grace, about faith, in Christ, ultimately about the glory of God being the, the ultimate end for all of us, for God himself. Well, underlying that is the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, his control over all things. Um, and so, yeah, we, we celebrate that. But the reason we celebrate that is because of that first point, that this, this um, recommitment to God's word, the scripture, the study thereof, to shape the life of the church, you cannot escape the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You could turn to any page in the Bible, and it's there. Uh, either implicit or explicit, you will see that it underlies everything that God reveals about himself, that he is the sovereign one. There is no other God but he. We've been reading it over and over again in Isaiah. So it's be, the reason we cover it so much is because it is in the Bible so much. And the reason it's in the Bible so much, it's, it's something we have to grasp or grasp to the, degree, to the degree we can. I mean, there are answers uh, to questions uh, that only God knows and we won't learn till heaven about his sovereignty. But there can be no doubt about his absolute sovereignty. Um, and we'll see how this is so even today as we look at this passage together. Here as I read the last five verses of chapter 45, we'll start back at the beginning when we start, but I want us to close with this capstone because I want us to see what the right response is. How should we live in light of the fact of God's sovereignty? I think it's revealed for us uh, in simple terms in these verses before us. I will read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word now. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that cannot, that shall not return. 
To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were light incensed against in the Lord. All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your precious word. We are unable to discern our way in the world apart from your revealed truth as presented in Scripture. Please guide us in understanding this chapter in Isaiah so that we might grow in knowledge and wisdom. Help us not only to know what is true, but also what to do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I distinctly remember coming to an understanding about God's sovereignty a few years into my studying the Bible. Now, I don't mean by an understanding where I could comprehend everything that God's sovereignty means. I don't mean that. I mean more of a submission to the reality of what the Scripture teaches. The reality of what must be the case if God will be God. I became a Christian much the same way many of you uh, came to Christ I grew up in a church, a church that did not, did not preach clearly the gospel of salvation through Christ alone, but I was there dutifully every week, and I remember uh, outside of that church actually hearing the message of the gospel. Now, I'd been living under conviction concerning my sin. The church I was at did that well. I understood I was a sinner. I had no doubt. I was scared of God. I was sure that I would pay for my sins. I felt guilty all the time, a certain amount of shame. And I remember somebody telling me outside of the church... It was a Christian saying to me that the only way we could have our sins forgiven and that guilt removed was through faith in Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting in his work on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. It all came together at that moment. God brought me to understanding the gospel, and I believed. Now, I remember uh, it wasn't very long after I wasn't going to a church that preached the Bible regularly, so I didn't know how to grow in my understanding of God, my walk with Christ. And so a friend, a few friends, invited me to their church, and it had Bible in the name, so I knew it would tell me about the Bible. And it did, faithfully. I opened the Bible every week and expressed the truths that were therein. I remember distinctly hearing in a Sunday school class, I was a seminary student, in his second year, he's back for the summer, and he was expounding on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, literally going page to page, showing how it was there. And I could not stand what he was saying. It got me mad because I had thought that I had finally come to Christ. It was almost like he'd been knocking on the door, knocking on the door of my heart, and finally I let him in. And isn't he fortunate that I let him in? Now, it sounds funny, but that's kind of how I thought. I wouldn't say it out loud, but okay, now that I'm a Christian, Lord, I could start doing some real stuff for you, and I could, I could be this advocate for you. And I had this sense of my autonomy, and that now that I'm a Christian, I've chosen to do this, and, now I, and I'm going to live my life this way, and I, 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 I. And he's bringing this message about God, 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 and it just, it offended my autonomy. And furthermore, I thought he was a little obnoxious in the way he gave me this information. Uh, it just, just offended me. Now, I want to say that that's often a criticism we reform people get about our love of the doctrine of sovereignty. Now, it's partly true that we unleash a bit when we catch on to this and we could come off as jerks. There's no doubt. But it's also true that The doctrine of sovereignty, it affronts people's sense of autonomy, and anything that affronts our autonomy comes off as offensive. So it's not all that we're jerks, it's that 
people don't want to be told they're not in complete control. That initial response, it's tough. If you can remember where you were with that, it probably offended you when you heard the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But as the scripture became clearer to me because it was being taught faithfully on a regular basis, I didn't admit it out loud for quite some time. But I came to the realization months before I told anybody, before I came out of the closet to say that I believe in God's sovereignty. I knew people would think, oh, you believe like those? I just think it says it in the scripture. And then I start to think about it. Well, if God's not in absolute control, then that means what is he? Is he on man's beck and call? In other words, he lets all this bad stuff happen. He lets it happen. He could stop it, but he doesn't. That God doesn't bother you more. I have to pray to this God to unleash him so he can... It just does not add up. We, we react to the sovereignty of God because it affronts our autonomy. But the flip side is so far worse. So, why does the Bible keep speaking of it? Because it's true. Because it's what we as Christians need for a particular reason. And it's not to be jerks. It's not to be obnoxious about it. We may be excited about it. But realize it has a very distinct pur- purpose. And it shows itself in this passage. As God reveals once again his sovereignty in particular over rulers and over nations, what should our response be? That's what I pray we gather from this. What is the right response to grasping the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty? Now, we live in a day, we should be sensitive to this, where the Christians around us at large don't adhere to this doctrine. Most Christians say God is all-powerful, but they still, they don't affirm his absolute sovereignty. Really, I think as Scripture says it, they love Jesus. They're in churches that preach the Bible faithfully in most regards. But when they hear this doctrine, it's like they hear it and then something else comes out in their explanation of it. So we have to be all the more careful to be clear about what the Bible says in a gracious way. Now, case in point, as I was studying for this, there are literally so many passages on God's sovereignty, I didn't know where to begin. So I did a search on Google, top 10 verses on God's sovereignty. And Pathios, a site that I like for the most part, comes up with a man named Jack Wellman writing uh, this article. So you can look it up after Wellman, Pathios, Sovereignty. And he gives the top seven verses. I thought seven, that's even better. It's a perfect number. Psalm 115.3 he cites, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And he gives a nice little devotional thought about how that's true. Then he says, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's Joseph speaking to his brothers. God meant that evil thing for good. God meant it um, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, affirming the sovereign hand of God in human affairs. He cited as his third, Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's sovereignty even over our plans. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Isaiah 40.23, he gives in his top seven. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Great article building up about the sovereignty of God, I'm thinking, right? I mean, where else could he go with this, these line of verses? And there's so many more. He cites 2 Chronicles 26. O Lord, God of our fathers, you are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. This is going to be a great article about the sovereignty of God. Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Great buildup 
for an article on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God by a brother in Christ. And I'm not kidding, this is his conclusion right after citing all these verses. He says, and I quote, The fact is that mankind has free will. Jack, go back, read the verses again. Then he says, any that come to Christ can be saved. That's true, no doubt. But they must repent and believe in him. Man has free will and they must, he can be saved, but he must do this. In God's sovereignty, this is how he captures it. In God's sovereignty, he allowed Jesus to be murdered and he knew no sin. He who knew no sin was then allowed to die for those of us who were sinful. So when Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that's him saying that Jesus was allowed to be murdered. Brothers and sisters, I, we, gotta, we have a disconnect between what the Scripture plainly says and what we want. I think it's our American individualism wants to craft things that are a little uncomfortable at first and twist them around to say something. And I don't mean twist with any maliciousness. It just doesn't make sense that we would come to this conclusion after these wonderful list of verses that he notes. So I want us to, with this mindset, look at this passage together and see what the right response is to God's sovereignty. Acknowledge it's true, Okay, then what do we do? Because that's what's important. God reveals the truth of his absolute sovereignty to provoke his people to trust and worship. We'll unpack that more as the passage does. But for now, the reason is not to be right in an argument. That's not why we affirm the sovereignty of God. It's not to be obnoxious about it or to put other people down. It's to provoke us to a deeper trust and worship of God. What could be better than that? That's the purpose. And that's why we have on display for us, again, God's sovereignty. Let's begin at verse 1, where we see God sovereign over the rulers. And the example is Cyrus here. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. This is going to be the future king or emperor or ruler of Persia. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. God is sovereign over Cyrus and for Cyrus to do his will. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. God is sovereign over the rulers and he will give rulers success or failure based on his will so that people know, first starting with the ruler, that he is God. Isaiah, speaking here of Cyrus. Who's Cyrus? This is important from history, we know. Cyrus was the ruler of Persia that was responsible for conquering Babylon. Now, back up. Isaiah's writing around 700 years before Jesus. At that time, Assyria was waning, Babylon was rising. It wasn't like they had one big war and then power transferred. Babylon, uh, over a period of years, started to encroach upon Assyria's kingdom and eventually defeat Assyria and take and kill its kings. That's kind of the official start, but it was beginning long before that. So Assyria is losing, Babylon is rising, and Isaiah is writing to the people of God. It doesn't matter where the people of God find themselves. God will bring comfort to them 
no matter whether it's Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or whatever, wherever they find themselves, God will be faithful to uphold his people. And he's promising his people that through what he will do in the future. They won't see this themselves, the original recipients. But in the future, he will raise another king to take over, to conquer Babylon, and then he will use this this pagan king, an unbelieving king, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to rebuild their city and their temple. Uh, So this is a forecast of what he will do. They're going to go through captivity and exile, then he'll raise up Cyrus, and Cyrus will do his bidding. But the greater lesson here is how it is that God uh, takes the heart of the king and moves it which way that he desires, as it says in the Proverbs. Back to verse 4 now. For the sake of my servant Jacob, that's his people, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So the sovereign hand of God upon a ruler is ultimately for the purpose of revealing himself, even if the ruler ruler doesn't acknowledge him. It doesn't matter whether Cyrus acknowledges him or not. God's plan will go on. God will do his work to glorify his name and also to preserve his people. And he does it in many ways with many kinds of rulers. God never stops declaring himself to those rulers and people. Verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I want you to notice this as it relates to the sovereignty of God. It says very clearly, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So God moves all these things together. He even brings well-being and he even brings calamity. Both cases, it is so that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. So these temporal afflictions that we receive on earth, they're to declare who God is, that he's in control. We must turn to him. It's all within his sovereign control. None of this is by mistake. We see God's declaration to Cyrus and, by extension, the people about his rulership. He declares his sovereignty over the rulers of earth. They think at the time they're powerful. They think at the time they're consequential. All of them. Rulers get this. It goes to their heads. But notice the warning from God and the reality that we see from what God reveals. Verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Now you're going to catch a bit of Romans chapter 9. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. It's silly to imagine that which is formed by the potter complaining or rebelling. So the warning to God is, don't buck the reality of my sovereignty. Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? I mean, imagine these things said to these people. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. 
Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? He pronounces his sovereignty. He explains who he is. You cannot thwart my plan. It's, it's a call to compliance. Do as I say, because I will do what I will. God does, in fact, use Cyrus, just as he predicts, 150 years after he predicts it. God always does what he sets out to do. God is sovereign over rulers. In fact, one of the most vivid examples of this to bolster that this is not just a one-time instance with Cyrus. It's always the case. He did it with Pharaoh. You remember when Moses describes what Pharaoh did in response to God sending the plagues? There's the human level. A lot of times people will take the human level passages to just describe the situation. They'll say, look, see, man had this choice in this, and he, and he did this, and he thwarted the." There's just a couple levels at which you have to look at the text. I mean, there's the, this is what happened on the outward, and then there's the behind the curtain. This is what really happened. Okay, that's true of everything. It says in Exodus 8, And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, not one remains. So he ended that plague. Verse 32 of chapter 8 in Exodus, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. See, look at him. He's powerful. He can stand up to God. Just a chapter later, we receive this word to recognize the truth. It says in Exodus 9, 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses later in chapter 10. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Four more times it says about the same thing. Pharaoh may have thought of himself as the most powerful ruler on earth, but he was merely a servant of the most powerful being in the universe, God himself. Another example is Nebuchadnezzar, and it's my favorite. I love the example of Nebuchadnezzar, especially when people are all tense about who the leader will be. In some sense, it doesn't matter who the leader will be. God will do what he wills through that leader and to that leader. Now, it will result in something for the people of God, no doubt, but this does not take away God's sovereignty at all. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, who has a role to play in the life of God's people. He's the the leader and the king and the, the supreme potentate of Babylon in the known world. And here is Nebuchadnezzar, like so many leaders, thinking well of himself. And it says in Daniel 4, At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. You could just picture him strolling, looking at all the buildings. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? The text says, while the words were still in his mouth, it's like he was saying it to himself on the top of his house. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. By the way, this is what I pray for all our presidents. That they will know who the Most High is, no matter who it is. It doesn't matter how bad they are, God can make them know. Verse 33 of Daniel 4, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. And I love what the text says next. 
At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking first person, Nebuchadnezzar now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of all the earth that he knew of, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, said Nebuchadnezzar, and his, God's kingdom, endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar has better theology than most Christians today. Clearly, he was not the sovereign one God was. These were not righteous men, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh. These were not godly people. They were not righteous rulers. God appoints all sorts of rulers, righteous and unrighteous alike. Whatever the case, God will use them for his purposes. Now, hear this, that many times, especially in the life of his people, this side of the cross, and since the, the church has spread over the globe in such a wonderful way, many times the rulers that he appoints reflect something of the righteousness or unrighteousness of the times and even of his people. God uses earthly rulers for kingdom purposes. Make no mistake, it's in his sovereign plan. He will use them for whatever his people need in a given time. I say his people, it's not that he doesn't care about the world, he is that sovereign everywhere. But I love the way the confession captures how God works. It says in the fifth chapter of our confession, capturing the biblical truth about this, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures... So after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Now, take care of his church doesn't always mean comfort and ease. It could mean purify. It could mean deepen. We could be shallow and we need depth. It's for the good of his church that he works these things. This, of course, includes the appointing of certain rulers. Make no mistake, this is part of it. There's a lot of tension, a lot of debate, even argument about candidates, especially for our next president. By all means, Christians should engage. We live in a country where you can engage in many ways. Engage the process with biblical discernment and action to the best of our abilities. But in the end, realize that God appoints people to the seats of judges, to the thrones of kings, and even to the White House. And his purposes for the church will not be thwarted. Whichever candidate is made the next president, the situation for Christians will still grow more difficult, I submit to you. Rather than praying for an easier time of things, our right desire and prayer should be for God to give us a renewed humility before him and trust in his rule so that he can be declared. We should react to the times by asking God to give us grace. Give us endurance, whatever comes. Give us faithfulness to the gospel no matter what time in which we live. Now, very closely uh, related to God's sovereignty over rulers is the sovereignty over the nations, which is, is hit upon now in verse 12 and following. Look at verse 12. God speaking, I made the earth and created man on it, referring to his creatorship again. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host, his creatorship, makes clear that he is the ruler of it all as well. He's the sovereign one. After all, he made it. Verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness. He's talking about Cyrus. 
It doesn't mean he made him righteous, but he stirred him up in righteousness insofar as the cause of God is concerned. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God will use Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem. He will send exiles that are in Babylon back to do the work. And you could read this wonderful story in Ezra and Nehemiah. He will raise the nation of Israel from the ashes. He can do this because he's sovereign. And he does this with nations over and over again. He rises them up and he lowers them down. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. So as Cyrus exacts God's will by issuing an edict that allows him to go back and build the walls and build the temple and build the city, he will draw from the nations their wealth and their wisdom to help this process. Now, it's not that the Egyptians all of a sudden woke up and had this knowledge or understanding. God sovereignly worked together over the centuries to give them this knowledge so at the time he needed them for his purposes, and they're all his sub-purposes, but his purposes for his people, they're ready to be called upon to help. He's sovereign over the nations, ultimately for the purpose of his people and his glory, but this means he has his hand on it all, all the time. God would use these powerful nations around Judah to help in the rebuild. It says in the second part of verse 14, they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. They're going to recognize something's going on. And there is no other no God beside him. The nations are going to see what's going on. Babylon took over. Everyone knows the story. And here's Cyrus issuing an edict. Certainly there are those who have at their disposal what Isaiah predicted 150 years before. Clearly, verse 15, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. He just simply means he, he's working behind the scenes to make this happen because <clears throat> he just confessed God is in this. Now, what about those who don't believe this? Verse 16, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. All those who are worshiping a different God, uh, disagreeing with what the God of Israel says, they will be put to shame. God declares himself to the nations. And when they reject him, they are eventually revealed and put to shame. But God preserves his people in the midst of this, as part of the fruit of his sovereignty over the nations. Verse 17, But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Understand when God talks about eternal measures for Israel, he's not talking about ethnic Israel at this point. That's, that's just the, the seed for true Israel, who will be revealed through faith in Christ, as it says in Galatians. The sons and daughters of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ. This is the eternal Israel. For thus says the Lord, verse 18, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. It was his will to inhabit the earth and to call people to himself. I am the Lord and there is no other, verse 18. The absolute sovereignty of God over the nations, peoples, and things is everywhere taught in the Bible. God declares the truth about himself on practically every page. 
Verse 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God speaks through his people to declare it to the nations. And God uses the nations to accomplish his purposes, especially his purposes for his church. Nations come and go, brothers and sisters. But God's people always remain. God used Egypt in the life of Israel, his people. He used Assyria in the life of his people. He used Babylon in the life of his people. He used Persia in the life of his people. He used Greece later in the life of his people, giving a language that the New Testament could be written by and everybody would know. He used Rome in the life of his church, giving a system of travel, of government, of citizenship, even the persecution. God used the various nations in post-Roman Empire, Europe, and the world over, even through tough times for the church in the Middle Ages. God used the persecution of various nations to hone and strengthen his church. But did you notice something as I went through these nations? No one in their right mind thinks of Egypt as a powerful nation any longer. Egypt's gone, for that matter. At least Egypt, like we read about them, referred to in Scripture. No one here even knows an Assyrian. Where did all the Babylonians go? Remember when Saddam Hussein was going to rebuild Babylon? The only thing Persia is known for anymore are cats, rugs, and a golf. No offense to the Greeks. Their cultural legacy is strong. I know it is, even in our own church. But their country's not so much. They had to borrow 8 billion euros in June just to get through the month. 8 billion euros. All that remains of the mighty Roman Empire. You can see in a half day for 100 bucks in a university student giving you a tour. That's the mighty empire of Rome. But how's the church? The church. Jesus' bride. The church, make no mistake, prospers. In places where nations like these mentioned think they can squash it, they can't and they haven't. I just read on the Telegraph, and I question it because I think it's already happened, but they say that the number of Christians in communist China is growing steadily, so steadily that by 2030, it could have more churchgoers than America. I'm all but certain that's true. They just can't go openly to church in many places. So that's how we don't know for sure. Yes, God's church never squashed completely or made a distant memory. Lecrae says it the best. You might see her acting crazy. Be patient with her, though, because she's still God's baby. She's the church. Nations rise and nations fall, but God's hand upon the church remains, and he has kept his promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. The side we ought to be on is the side of God and his church. The sovereignty of God is a clear teaching of Scripture, yet many Christians will deny or won't want to talk about it or won't plumb the depths of it, yet I think it's the very thing we need. What's the right response to God's sovereignty then? I said earlier, it's not to win an argument. That's not our point. So we can defeat those who disagree. That is not the point. It's to unite us in humility related to our God. And I think you see it exactly displayed in the text before us. We talk about the sovereignty of God. Yes, we're talking about his infinite rule, his authority and his power. That he has elevated infinitely elevated above the highest creature in authority, nature, and being. By God's sovereignty, we're talking about his supreme authority, control, and power. 
So after displaying this by his sovereignty over the rulers and over the nations, in verse 20 he returns to this courtroom drama model and says, all right, you've heard my case, come and tell me how it's otherwise. Those of you who are putting your trust into idols, tell me how it's wrong. Look at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Okay, everybody else who doesn't believe in me and the true and living God, you're worshiping some idol somewhere. Uh, Come to me, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Get together. Talk this out. Think about this for a moment. Think about this. Who told you these things? Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, God says? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. He's not just the sovereign God. He's the one who saves, too. He can save because he's sovereign. A God who is not sovereign cannot save. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. What should the response be? All of this builds up to verse 22. Verse 22. This is how we respond to the sovereignty of God. Turn to me and be saved. Don't get mad. Don't get upset. If a person was a jerk and how they told it to you, I'm sorry for that. But it's still true. Turn to me, God says, and be saved. Don't say it's not fair. You can't do that. You're clay. He's the potter. Don't get upset with God. Why do bad things happen? You're all right with bad things happening and a God just watching it happen for no reason? You're okay with that? Listen, I don't understand why all the bad things happen the way they do. But if God is sovereign, it gives some purpose. It gives something redeemable about it. It makes some sense. It makes no sense if he just lets it happen and could have stopped and he didn't. What's the response? Turn to him and be saved. He's the only place you can turn for salvation. Because he's sovereign. Turn to me and be saved. Who? All the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. So the, res- the response is to repent, to come to God, to submit to him, believe in him, don't argue with him, don't get mad at him for the way things are. Humbly be bow-, bow before him. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. The right response to the absolute sovereignty of God is to repent and turn to him. Look at the rest, verse 23. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You know where this comes from. It's from Philippians. We're going to get there in a moment. Paul draws on the sovereignty of God to help us relate with each other in the church. We'll be there in a moment. Romans 14 quotes this passage. The sovereignty of God provokes the humility necessary to place our trust in him. Do you see this? The sovereignty of God provokes our worship of him. Even as a teenager, when I came to trust Christ, I didn't know it at the moment. It was a realization that God was powerful enough to provide salvation for me that drew me to him. The sovereignty of God provokes a humility that is necessary to place our trust in him, to believe on him. If we're not humbled, we think we still contribute, we still participate, we somehow are part of it, but that's not true. It's a gift of God so that no man can boast. The sovereignty of God provokes our worship of him. Verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord 
It shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Those who deny me, who don't believe that I am this way of salvation. You'll be ashamed because you'll be left on your own, in yourself, and you'll see it brings nothing. Verse 25, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The, the fate of those who trust in God is justification before him. They're right with him in glorification ultimately. What does a grasp of God's sovereignty do? It promotes humility. It evokes praise and worship of God. It gives us reason to trust God in any circumstance. He knows what he is doing. When times are tough, knowing that God is sovereign consoles us. It gives us perseverance. The sovereignty of God, rightly understood, doesn't make us complacent. A person who's complacent doesn't understand the sovereignty of God at all. Instead, it does the opposite. Knowledge of the sovereignty of God gives us, it emboldens us to go do whatever God calls us to do, knowing he controls what will come of it. It encourages diligence in our walk with God. I want to conclude by referring you to Paul's use of God's sovereignty in the practical life of Christians. How does it affect our body? How does this humility, how does this trust in him, how does this promotion of worship through the sovereignty of God impact the life of the church? In preface, in our confession in the, fifth, in the third chapter on God's eternal decrees, it's about his sovereignty basically, one of the subsets of his sovereignty is predestination, that he orders things to come to pass. That's hard to understand. I'm not telling you I understand it all. I won't understand it till heaven. I'm even not sure that that's, it's not God's responsibility to let us know at all. He, it's just too big for our heads to grasp. But it's there. And I love what the confession says in conclusion to help us with this doctrine. He's talking about predestination, but you can see how it affects it all. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, an abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Because if you do, how humble that should make you. You only believe the gospel because a sovereign God united you together with his son Jesus through faith. If that does not humble you, you have not believed the right thing. Paul says, and it echoes what we just read in verse 23 of Isaiah 45, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's God the Father speaking. Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's us in the body of believers. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So humility is the marked example we receive from our Savior. Therefore God, because of this humility of Jesus on display in the fulfilled work, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, now remember Isaiah 45, 23, to me, God, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Philippians 2, 10, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God, and he has paid this price for us. He has called us to be humble with one another in light of this sovereign plan working itself out. God will make every knee bow and every tongue confess. How will he do it? Through the humble work of Christ. That work is shown through the life of his people as they grasp this truth and live out this humility. God reveals the truth of his absolute sovereignty in order to provoke his people, to provoke us to trust and worship him. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we of all people should be most humble. We have seen and believe what your word says about your sovereignty. Grip us with awe for you and your grace to us sinners through Christ. Make us to be humble but confident proclaimers of the truth about you and your sovereignty. Deepen our trust for you in challenging times. Prompt us to worship you no matter the circumstances. Grant us faithfulness in our trust in you and walk with you. For you are truly the rock of ages. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.